The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. I'm your host, Elliot the Historian. This episode is entitled, The Headless Demon. I'm going to talk about one of my favorite periods of history, a period filled with fascinating characters, romance, victory against all odds, and tragedy. The period I'm going to discuss is in the 6th century, but I need to discuss the 5th century a bit to set the stage. While episodes 1 and 2 are not required listening, they do provide some context to the events leading up to the period we're going to discuss this episode. And of course, they're interesting in their own right. Still, don't panic if you haven't heard episodes 1 and 2, because I'm going to give a brief refresher on the Roman Empire in the 5th century. By the beginning of the 5th century, the Roman Empire was henceforth ruled by two emperors, one controlling the eastern half and one controlling the western half. Around the same time, the Roman Empire experienced political changes that weakened the power structures that emperors had built for themselves. These changes allowed for Germanic military men to rise to positions that were effectively more powerful than the emperor himself. In the west, after a series of puppet emperors were appointed by Germanic overlords, the overlord named Odoacer eventually did away with the weakened position of emperor altogether in the west. But the eastern half of the empire played out differently. At around the same time the western Germanic overlords were doing away with the office of emperor, the eastern emperor Leo I, aka Leo the Thracian as he came from Thrace, modern-day Bulgaria, had managed through savvy political maneuvering to extricate the office and power of the emperor from the Germanic overlords in the east permanently. While the Eastern Roman Empire definitely had its share of palace intrigue in its thousand-year history, it never again had to deal with the same kind of Germanic shadow rule that eventually removed the Western Roman Emperor altogether. For a time, all the Eastern Roman Empire could do was watch former crucial pieces of the empire fall away to Germanic tribes. North Africa fell to the Vandals. The Visigoths and the Swaby tribes settled kingdoms in modern-day Spain. The Franks were well on the way to forming a kingdom in areas of modern-day France and even parts of Belgium and Germany. And the Italian peninsula, plus the city of Rome itself, that area that literally was the center of the Roman Empire, as well as figuratively, was now under the control of the tribe of the Ostrogoths. In fact, this was at the urging of the eastern half of the empire. The Ostrogoths had been a threat to the eastern Roman Empire. By urging the Ostrogoths to head west, the Eastern Roman Empire was putting one threat up against another. The idea was that they could get rid of one threat, Odoacer, with another threat, the Ostrogoths. What we're seeing here is an early example of what is often called Byzantine diplomacy. The Eastern Roman Empire, which is also called the Byzantine Empire, often employed the diplomacy of employing enemies against enemies, then later going after those original allies. The Byzantines would do this again and again to varying degrees of success over the next thousand years. So the Ostrogoths, under their king Theodoric, conquered Italy, kicked out Odoacer, and were even recognized by the East as Magister Militum per Italium, which was basically commander-in-chief in Italy. The Eastern Roman Empire acknowledged his Magister Militum status, but they did not acknowledge the status of king, Latin Rex, of Italy, that Theodoric was trying to adopt for himself. 
I mention this because there's a sense during this period on the part of the Eastern Roman Empire that they would eventually regain all of this lost territory. After the West fell in 476, it seems the eastern half of the empire spent much of its time stabilizing. Stabilizing politically, stabilizing defenses through fortification and diplomacy, and stabilizing economically. By the time an illiterate man that rose through the military ranks and became emperor in 518, that man, the Emperor Justin I, inherited a huge treasury from his predecessor, the Emperor Anastasius I. Justin's reign of nine years was not very notable, but there is some good evidence that towards the later years of his reign, he had help and guidance from his nephew, who would eventually himself become emperor. It is the reign of this emperor who will be the central theme of this and the next episode. Justin I died in 527 AD, and he was immediately succeeded by the aforementioned nephew. That nephew was Flavius Petrus Sabadius Justinianus Augustus, but you probably know him by his more common name, Justinian I. Justinian was a controversial character in his time for reasons we'll get into. In fact, one of our best sources of information about Justinian comes from a contemporary scholar named Procopius. And Procopius hated Justinian so much that he wrote a scandalous secret history about Justinian that was only published after the death of Procopius. In it, Procopius tells us that some of those who have been with Justinian at the palace late at night have thought that they saw a strange demoniac form taking his place. One man said that the emperor suddenly rose from his throne and walked about and immediately Justinian's head vanished. Presently he perceived the vanishing head filling out and joining that body again as strangely as it had left it. So even scholars hated Justinian so much that they thought he was a headless demon. Of course, you might be wondering why we should trust anything Procopius tells us, given that goofy passage. But the fact is, in studying history, almost nothing is more valuable than a primary source, even a biased primary source. What is a primary source? A primary source, put simply, is a source of historical information that was actually there, that actually lived at least part of what they're telling us about. Other examples of primary sources throughout history are Thucydides telling us of the Peloponnesian War in which he fought, or Anna Komnena detailing the Komnenan dynasty in the Alexiad. Even when we know the source is biased, we can still glean extremely useful information from these primary sources, especially when we have other sources against which to compare, such as documents from other sources or archaeological evidence. Like his uncle Justin, Justinian had come from a very low class and rose his way through the ranks of the military. The fact that he was able to rise from so low to so high is a testament to his political savvy. Let's take an example of his political guile. During this period, charioteering was an extremely popular sports event to watch, bet on, and, you know, get in fights and riots over. At the time of Justinian's rise, there were two teams of note, the unimaginatively named Blues and the Greens. These teams had more than just sports fans. In fact, something akin to political parties called demes, that's D-E-M-E-S, would form around one team or another. Political disputes in the city would often play out as proxy sports riots, as one mob would be motivated not just by team pride, but by political purpose. 
Who was associated with what team isn't important for our discussion. What's relevant to us is that Justinian used these sports-themed political parties to prop up his own rise, often playing one party against another. Five years into Justinian's reign, in January of 532 AD, the very same charioteering teams that helped Justinian gain power almost brought Justinian down. Here's what happened. Early in his reign, Justinian was already fairly unpopular due to high taxes, so the population of Constantinople was already waiting for an opportunity to explode. The explosion was catalyzed in 531, when in response to a particular set of murders that had been committed after a chariot race, some popular members of both the blue and green chariot teams were arrested for these murders. Since members of both teams were arrested, it managed to anger pretty much everyone. Most of those that were arrested were executed on January 10th, 532. But two of them, a blue and a green, managed to escape and hide in a church. These two men gave angry crowds something around which they could rally. Tension grew over a few days, and in a chariot race on January 13th, 532, it blew up. The day began with the crowd throwing insults at Justinian, who sat in a box connected to the imperial palace from which he could view the Hippodrome, the stadium in Constantinople where chariot races were held. By the end of the day, the crowd was pouring out of the stadium to riot. Massive destruction was caused, fires were started, and the crowd attempted to assault the palace. As they did this, they chanted Nika, which means victory in Greek, and it's for that reason that this episode is called the Nika Riots. That's um, linguistically related to Nike, or Nike, like the shoe. Like I said, it means victory. Justinian was terrified. He holed up in the palace and was preparing to secretly escape from the city. This is a good time to talk about Justinian's wife, Theodora. Theodora was a fascinating person in her own right. She is also one of the reasons Justinian was a controversial figure during his time. You see, Theodora was an actress. We moderns have a tendency to idolize our actors and actresses, and some would even call the most famous of actors and actresses to be a modern form of royalty. But in the time of Justinian, being an actor or actress was one of the lowest and most scandalous professions imaginable. People at the time considered the profession of prostitution to be above the profession of acting, although it's worth noting that acting did on occasion involve prostitution as well. So when Justinian married Theodora, it was considered unthinkable. But this didn't deter Justinian. Considering royals throughout history often married for political gain, the marriage of Justinian and Theodora is one of the great love stories in history. It's not surprising that Justinian fell in love with this remarkable woman, as by most accounts, she was beautiful, confident, and brilliant. Which brings me to why I brought her up at this point. As I mentioned, at the height of the Nika riots, Justinian was preparing to escape the city in secret. We'll never know what would have happened had Justinian left the city, because Theodora gave Justinian probably the greatest motivational speech in history. Here's most of the speech. It's a bit long, but worth sharing. In my opinion, flight is not the right course, even if it should bring us to safety. It is impossible for a person, having been born into this world, not to die. But for one who has reigned, it is intolerable to be a fugitive. May I never be deprived of this purple robe, and may I never see the day when those who meet me do not call me Empress. If you wish to save yourself, my lord, 
There is no difficulty. We are rich. Over there is the sea, and yonder are the ships. Yet reflect for a moment whether, when you have once escaped to a place of security, you would not gladly exchange such safety for death. As for me, I agree with the adage that the royal purple is the noblest shroud. Her speech moved Justinian enough to stay and ride out the riots. But the question remained as to how to stop this chaotic, violent, out-of-control mob, which, as I mentioned, was already causing fires throughout the city, as well as widespread destruction of buildings. Not only that, but by now the rioters had crowned their own emperor, a man named Hypatius, who was a nephew of the earlier Eastern Roman emperor, the aforementioned Anastasius I. Well, one of the reasons Justinian and the period he reigned is so remarkable is that he surrounded himself with remarkable people. Not just his wife, but several of his advisors and generals were very talented and intelligent. Two of these men, Justinian's top generals, Belisarius and the eunuch Narses, were practically secret weapons that Justinian was able to employ against the rioters. The first step was to cut the rioters in half. This was done remarkably, not by Justinian's main general Belisarius, but by his advisor Narses. Narses took a large sum of gold to the Hippodrome, in which there were still thousands of rioters. Now keep in mind, even though these rioters were all working together in a semi-chaotic mob against the shared enemy of the emperor, in the background still lurked their respective affiliations to either the Blues or the Greens, and that these functioned much like political parties. Furthermore, the emperor that had been crowned by the rioters, Hypatius, was a Green. Narcisse exploited this fact. He went into the section of the Hippodrome that the Blues were and found the ones that would be most likely to be considered leaders. He gave them a sack of gold and pointed out that the emperor that they themselves were contributing to crowning was a green. The Blues took the hint and the gold and poured out of the Hippodrome. The riot was now half the size that it was and the remaining rioters were confused at what was happening. Suddenly they just saw half of their riot completely disappear. This allowed for Justinian's general Belisarius to move in with his troops, block off the Hippodrome, and slaughter the remaining rioters. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Reports are that about 30,000 rioters were killed in this military action. I'm pointing this out because I'm going to be talking about Belisarius and his military exploits quite a bit in the next episode. He was a brilliant general, one of the most brilliant. And it's probably going to sound at points like I'm idolizing and justifying him or his military action. I don't, and I'm not. But it's times like this that I want to use to point that out. Okay, just to shake ourselves out of that somber note, here's a fun fact about Justinian, Belisarius, and Narses. If you've noticed the logo on my podcast, you've probably noticed that it's a face. That face is the face of Justinian. It's taken from a mosaic that you can still see today in the Basilica of San Vitale in Ravenna, Italy. A bigger view of the mosaic is on my website, www.streamoftime.org. In the wider picture, you'll see more people. The person to Justinian's left, that's stage left, is Narses. The fully bearded man to Justinian's right, again stage right, is Belisarius. We're going to talk more about Belisarius next episode, as I mentioned, as we get into the military conquest by this brilliant general, of which there are many. But before I wrap this episode up, 
I want to talk about another controversial but very important change that took place under Justinian's reign and orders. Up until his reign, the Roman law code was a complete mess. It was a result of hundreds of years of additions, changes, rewritings, and so on. The law code hadn't been looked at holistically to any degree for almost 1,000 years. Justinian wanted to change that and have the law code organized, rather than a collection of laws that had built up. Justinian had his scholar Trebonian lead a team of scholars to review all of the laws in the Roman Empire and put them together into a single, multi-part compendium. It took five years, over the course of 529 to 534, but eventually the Corpus Juris Civilis, the body of civil law, was put together. Its importance can't be overstated. This four-part compendium served as the foundation of Western legal tradition, and is still used in certain kinds of law today, such as public international law. That's a wrap for this episode. Next episode, we'll finish the story of Justinian, Theodora, Belisarius, and Narses. And don't forget to check our website, www.thestreamoftime.org. That's www.streamoftime.org. There's now companion material for each podcast episode up on the website. Maps, pictures, links, things you can follow up to learn more about the topic of each episode. And don't forget to send feedback, questions, or even requests for future topics. Again, that's www.thestreamoftime.org. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and like. And see you next time on The Stream of Time.